You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome, 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 friends. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. And today is our season five finale episode. And like always, we have a special guest, a very special guest that uh, came at a very in a very serendipitous way if you listen to the mod wagner episode at the very end i said that i was doing research and came across a very interesting book one of the only books i saw that contained mod wagner in it and on the off chance that the author would actually read my email i thought why not why not email her and see what happens and this is what happens she's a guest on our episode today yay i'm so excited today we have margot mifflin author professor at lehman college and cultural critic to tell us all about her book looking for miss america thank you margot so much for joining us today a pleasure to be here i'm so excited to learn more about your book and your process of writing and all of the things that you found uh, while you were doing your research. So I guess my first question is, can you can you tell uh, us about your book? Tell us about Looking for Miss America. Yes, it's a feminist history, a cultural history of the Miss America pageant that um, considers like all the elements of this pageant, the historical elements, the the fashion, the scholarship component, the platforms, uh, where it started, why it started, how it's evolved over the past hundred years, because it just it just passed its hundredth birthday. I think it's in one oh one now. And uh, so I was just very curious. I was scrolling around watching TV and stumbled on it six or seven years ago <laughs> and thought, wow, this still happens. I hadn't thought about it for years. And having grown up in the 60s, and I was a teenager in the 70s, it was, you know, for for my generation, it was something that was much more present in our pop culture minds. It was almost like there was a chip implanted in every girl that was the Miss America (laughs) chip. And, And, you know, we saw it every year, people talked about it every year, and the Miss Americas were celebrated. But so when I was seeing it six or seven years, or maybe it's a little longer now, uh, uh, on TV, I was thinking like, who does this? And what yeah. what is the reward? What do they get out of doing it? And what culturally, mm-hmm. what kind of people are coming to it? And then started researching and realizing that it was much more complex than I thought, especially as a feminist critic. I thought mm-hmm. initially a little scornfully, oh my God, this is still a thing. Yeah. And so then I started the research and also realized because I'm I'm a journalist, though I teach in an English department, I realized that I would need to talk to people participating in it to really understand it. And that really complexified it because there were mm-hmm. both really and there were there were women who sort of fulfilled the cliche, but there were women who completely defied it. And either in that they were very savvy about using it to their own ends or that they had subverted it. There were some examples of women who had 
actually participated, broken the rules, and really gotten out of it what they wanted to get out of it by breaking the rules. So I was interested in the narrative history. There had when I did the research, I realized there was a lot of there was a lot of scholarship on this America in the late twentieth century, like the nineties in particular, and then it sort of died yeah. off. So I wanted to write a narrative history. I wanted to tell these women's mm. stories and through them trace the evolution of the pageant and what it meant. That's amazing. Uh, as I was going through your book, reading it and listening to it, I noticed how complex the story was. I went to university in Idaho and the pageant world, the pageant kind of community is really alive and well. I don't know if I'd use the word well. Mm -hmm. In Idaho, um, one of my best friends in university was a pageant queen, and that's how she got a lot of her scholarships mm -hmm. to go to our university. And they, there was the pageant life all over, all over the place. I knew so many girls who were in the pageant scene, and I had not grown up in Idaho, but went to university there. And until I went there. For me, pageants were something that were done on like the TLC channel mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that it was a TV thing or people did it in the South and they had fake tans and big hair and glittery dresses. And mm -hmm. that's all I knew about the pageant world until I moved to Idaho. And when you were talking about in your book that most of the pageant world began in Atlanta, I was oh, surprised. In Atlantic City. Yeah, Atlantic City. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Atlantic City. I I was so surprised. And then when I started to think about it, like, okay, that totally makes sense. How did you find out all of the information dating back all the way to the Atlantic City pageants with Neptune coming out of the ocean? Yes. <laughs> I know. It was so it was so different. It was I mean, it started in 1921, and it mm -hmm. was a uh, seaside event that was designed mm -hmm. to extend the summer season into September. So after Labor Day, mm -hmm. these hotel men in Atlantic City, which was this um, pretty built-up resort town, and more like a little higher class than I think than it is today in the post-casino age, but they thought, well... Um, they organized this, it was called the Fall Festival to, to happen after the, I guess it was the weekend after Labor Day so that they could bring more money into Atlantic City after their season typically ended. And the pageant was just this one piece of that festival, but they quickly saw people were really interested in this. So the next year they brought it back and then kept promoting it and promoting it and more and more people were watching it. But there were so many things happening about at this time. I mean, first of all, it was a swimsuit competition initially. That was all it was. And the, the swimsuit was performing this kind of contradictory role, which establishes these contradictions of Miss America that permeate its history up till today. The contradiction was that women's fashion had really accelerated and changed to a accommodate women being more out in the world and more active and physically active through sports. And so 
in a couple of decades before that, women were swimming in basically wool dresses. It was almost like streetwear that covered their bodies. So only in, in this particular period, like the late teens and early 20s, were, were um, revealing swimsuits starting to be a part of uh, seaside culture. On some beaches, it was uh, th there was actually a uh, what did they call them? Uh, there was like a beach patrol that came around and measured to make sure that you weren't showing too much skin. You could sh could show a little leg, but you could by no means show your you know your thighs. You had to have stockings rolled up to cover them and a skirt long enough to to cover those. And so the Miss America contestants were wearing something that was considered pretty skimpy and it was actually illegal in Atlantic City. Yeah. Which is amazing to think. And then they actually got permission to suspend the laws that existed at that time to do the pageant. So on one hand, they're exploiting the new possibility of women, like the progress of women's dress, but yeah. they're doing it for kind of the wrong reasons because this doesn't have anything to do with swimming. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's only about the female body and seeing the female body, parading the female body. And then this other interesting thing is happening, which is the year before, the uh, women had just won the vote. So those women mm. were wearing sashes indicating where they came from to march for suffrage and performing pageants that were all about sort of women's history and important women in history and mythology. Mm -hmm. So the pageant kind of took that sash and subverted it to a completely different end, which was about celebrating attractive women who were very domestically focused. When The, the winners were immediately asked at their press conferences, uh, what kind of a man do you want to marry? When do you want to get married? Yeah. How many kids are you going to want to have? And, <laughs> and a few like intrepid souls tried to talk about something else, but were quick, quickly corralled back in, uh, in, in onto the subject of marriage. So it was very repressive in that way. And yet there were these women, these subversives right from the start, who mm -hmm. got from it what they wanted to get from it, either by using it as a stepping stone into modeling or, or um, movie careers, or mm -hmm. simply by doing sponsored events where they made money and cashed in. Mm -hmm. And, or in some cases by attracting millionaire husbands and <laughs> kind of got the money yeah. that way. <laughs> it was fascinating to see how people used it to different ends. And in some yeah. cases, totally subversively as the thing progressed. There was one story, I, I forget the um, winner's name, but she won and then she was like the first winner to make a lot of money after the pageant and mm -hmm. i think in the book you said that she made if if all of the calculations were correct like sixty thousand dollars which would have been more than babe ruth would have made yes in that year yes she was norma smallwood and she was very savvy she uh decided mm -hmm. that she was going to get paid once she was Miss America. She didn't do things for free. And yeah, she made all this money. I'm not sure I totally believe the, the, the um, Babe Ruth story, although it's, it, mm -hmm. it cycles around a lot because he yeah. made a lot of money, but she did, she did really cash in. And then she, 
to her credit, when they told her you need to come back and crown the next uh, Miss America, she said, how much are you going to pay me? And I'm not sure if there even was pay or if it was just too low pay for her to accept. And she mm. said, I'm sorry, I have a different event, the an opportunity to pay <laughs> more. So I'm not going to be there for you. And that was the end of that. She moved on. She, she was really I love excited. that. <laughs> I love that for her. <laughs> yeah. And she was Amazing. also, interestingly, it wasn't advertised at the time, but she was part Native American. So the, the pageant was very white, but she competed yes. and won. And uh, yeah. I don't know what would have happened if she had revealed as she was contest as she was competing that she was yes. uh, a Native American contestant. We interrupt this program for a quick special announcement. A few months ago, you so generously filled out the For the Love of History census, and a lot of people said that they wanted to see more travel history content. And I have a really, really amazing opportunity to actually travel with you. So if you would be interested in going on a trip with me, TK, History BFF in the flesh together, there is a short interest survey in the show notes. I would be so grateful if you took the time to fill it out. Even if traveling this year would be difficult for you, this survey will really help me be able to create multiple trips over a longer period of time. So if it's something that you are even a little bit interested in, I would really appreciate you taking the time to fill it out. Thank you for everything. Thank you for being here because without you, I wouldn't have opportunities like this. I'm so, so excited. Okay, back to the episode. Bye. So on following that line of thinking, she didn't reveal that she was an indigenous person, a Native American. Mm -hmm. And all throughout the book, uh, you were talking about the very sinister parallels between eugenics and the pageant. Yes. And that was something that blew my mind. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So along with this curious contradiction of the swimsuit, there was the fact mm -hmm. that we had had this huge uh, influx of immigration. I think 12, 20 million immigrants hit our shores around the turn of the century. So there was this question of what is it, what does it mean to be an American and who represents America? And so yeah. Miss America was sort of perfectly poised not only to fulfill this mission as a bathing beauty, but also to be held up as an ideal American woman. And I think that's why yeah. the marriage and motherhood theme was so emphasized. But at the same time, mm -hmm. there it, it was the dawn of eugenics. So people were doing, there were these fitter family competitions where people competed yes. to demonstrate that they were healthy and they represented um, sort of American uh, national fitness, we could even say mm -hmm. hygiene on some level. And Miss yeah. America played into that and quickly was requiring that people trace their ancestry to prove that they were truly American. People, people oh. did that. Some did that and some just lied and said, you know, my family's been here for four generations, but who could, <laughs> who could prove they hadn't? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> notoriously um, Bess Meyerson, who was a really standout, successful, interesting, and subversive Miss America in her own right. She, her family had been here for maybe one or two generations. They were Russian mm-hmm. Jews. She was the only Jewish Miss America and still stands as the only ever uh, Jewish Miss America. And so she got there and thought, wow, I'm really in a completely different cultural uh, situation than I was when I left the Bronx in New York, where I grew up yeah. uh, in a huge in a Jewish community. And she mm-hmm. went through the questionnaire that was um, required of all the contestants and thought, well, I guess like I'm not going to really be able to say what kind of food I like or what kind of culture I come from. So I'm just going to say like oh. fried chicken. That's that's my favorite dish <laughs> as opposed to like latkes <laughs> or something. Um, Poor thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it was on some level e- easy enough to subvert that. But but her the, the 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 racism of the pageant didn't really end there for her. Once she won, she realized traveling in the South, people didn't want to see a Jewish Miss America. Sponsors didn't oh. want to sponsor a Jewish Miss America. And about I think it was maybe six months in, she just said, "I'm not doing this anymore." She went home, and she worked. She uh, connected with people from the Anti Defamation League and. Mm-hmm. Used that's another example of somebody who used it for her own ends. She became a public figure, adver- advocating for the cause she wanted to advocate for, rather than doing a song and dance routine in like vaudeville outlets throughout the country. And and she went into politics and was a, a very uh, sort of uh, important and omnipresent public figure for decades in the second Mm -hmm. half of the 20th century. Good for her. That's awesome. (laughs) When, so in the book, when do you see that turning point from the very first Miss America, who was a 15 year old little girl playing marbles in a, a park when the pageant people found her to tell her that she was going to Atlantic city to these actual women who were trying to make social and political changes. At what point does the shift happen? Or is it a gradual shift? Yes, it's, it is gradual. In the, so in the 20s, a lot of the contestants were basically teenagers, you know, under 18. Yeah. And some of them entered on a lark, not all of them. It didn't kind of have the cachet it gained throughout the 20th mm-hmm. century. So there were people who just did it on a lark, including one who won Betty Cooper in 1937 and then thought, what have I done? And didn't want to be Miss America. She wanted to, she didn't want to like travel the vaudeville circuit and perform for a year. She hadn't finished high school. She wanted to finish high school. She wanted to be with her friends. She also had fallen Mm. in love with, her pageant-appointed chauffeur who spirited her (laughs) her away in the night, on the night she won, so that the next day when she was supposed to be at her press event, uh, the press was met by an empty chair flanked by her two runners-up. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So she was someone who got into it, you know, just she was, you know, it wasn't like something she trained for as, as women did in later mm-hmm. years, but the way it evolved yeah. was 
the 20s it was the it was basically a swimsuit pageant in the 30s this director lenora slaughter came along who added talent she thought you can't really stand mm -hmm. around doing nothing they probably should do talent and in the early years it was pretty awful but it improved <laughs> and they they managed to attract <laughs> more people with better talent and then in the 40s they instituted the scholarship, which is kind of the defining aspect of Miss America that sets it apart from other pageants. Mm -hmm. And it was Bess yeah. Meyerson, who I was talking about as the first Jewish Miss America. She was the first one to have the scholarship, to win a scholarship. Mm -hmm. And that was really important. That's when people started to really pay attention and think, wow, mm -hmm. this could help me professionally and educationally. Certainly women who couldn't afford an education or whose families didn't think they should have an education were attracted mm -hmm. to that. So that's a, that I'd say the 40s is when it got serious. And then it reached its sort of peak of glamour in the 50s and 60s, and that was partly due to television. People were seeing mm -hmm. They reached a much bigger audience. Until then, it was just happening in an auditorium in Atlantic City. And then a, a big change happened in 1990 when social issues platforms were added, and that required that the winners uh, go out and advocate for literacy or um, what were some of the other ones, uh, you know. Well, in, one of the interesting ones, ones in the early era of the platforms was a woman named Lanza Cornette who advocated for AIDS awareness. And, and wow. so like 93 was very early in our national consciousness about AIDS. So that was very courageous mm -hmm. on her part. And she was someone who was doing something important and valuable along with being glamorous Miss America. One thing that I find so interesting about the pageants now, especially the Miss America, the Miss Universe competitions, is that they ask the women such deep and often philosophical and politically charged questions that they have to answer in something crazy like 30 seconds. They mm -hmm. get asked about, you know, should um, should the United States get involved in the Ukraine and Russian war? I don't know if any pageant queen has been asked that question specifically, but it's questions in, in that kind of vein. And they're expected to answer these questions in 30 seconds to one minute. And that seems a little bit crazy to me. It really is. John Oliver did a great segment on this, talking about um, yes. the questions that they're asked. He and he, there's actually it's a great episode. Uh, if anybody wants to Google it, I think it's called "Miss America: Why Is This Still a Thing?" or "How Is This Still?" I'll a put thing? it in the show notes. Okay, yeah. great. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it there's there's an error. In, it's a great report, but there's one error, which is that the. Uh, the example he gives of a sort of limit case, incoherent answer to some of these questions, he attributes to a Miss America, but it was actually a Miss USA. And I only say uh, that because okay. I think Miss America does train the contestants better than a lot of other pageants. Uh, and yeah. that, you know, that they cram for exams on or for questions on current events, you know, politics and so forth. So 
and that is a thing that I think the, the women I interviewed said that was very useful to them in their careers, regardless of what they went into, because it trained them as public speakers. And I noticed it when I was interviewing people, I noticed they were very clear and concise mm-hmm. and articulate in the way they were uh, talking about their experience. So it really helped a lot Great. of people. Uh, but yeah, so that business about asking the asking those questions, um, I think John Oliver was joking that uh, a couple one he gave an example of one woman who answered a question better than the president could have in twenty yes. seconds. I forget what the yeah. question was. <laughs> I think it was something about like how should the United States pull out of the Iraq War? Something that, yeah. something insane like that and she gave the most beautiful concise answer and I was my jaw dropped <laughs> it was yeah. such a, a a well thought out answer to such a complicated question and something that I find interesting is that there's a lot of bodybuilder competitions, a lot of like Mr. Universe, things like that, um, that are only focused on physique. And mm-hmm. I I just find it very interesting that there's no kind of interview portion. There's no talent portion. There's no super difficult question portion in those. Mm-hmm. And I know they developed in very different ways, but I just find it so interesting that even now, there's no kind of male equivalent to the Miss America, the Miss Universe um, pageants. Yeah, and that is a weird double standard. It's funny you mentioned the bodybuilders because Mr. America was designed based on Miss America's model, but they took that stuff out of it. And it, I think it's just a great illustration of the insane requirements this culture has for ambitious women. You can't just want to yes. be a piano player. You have to be beautiful. You have to be able to talk about current events. You have to, you know, wear a swimsuit on a stage yeah. in heels. Uh, for many women that I spoke to, an absolutely hum- humiliating experience. Some oh. say that one in particular says, well, I, I feel like if I could do that in front of millions of people on television, I can do anything. But my question would be, why are we asking women to do this? And exactly. it's you know, yeah. something like Miss USA. I think Gloria Steinem said it's a more honest pageant because it's just about the body. Whereas Miss mm-hmm. America is to me more interesting because of these in- these complexities, but also so demanding in a way that I think anybody who just wants to get a scholarship, if that's the goal, shouldn't be asked to perform. Yeah. Write an essay. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And and it does really have... Yeah. I mean, and it does really have... There's It has a pretty big identity problem now because... I guess three years ago, maybe maybe it was 2018, Mm -hmm. the swimsuit was removed. So that was the key thing back in the 20s. And that was the thing that Mm -hmm. was always debated. There was a Miss America one year where they let callers call in and say, do you want this swimsuit to be removed or not? And Mm -hmm. it it was sort of a self-selecting group. The, The people watching voted, yes, we want the swimsuit because they were the traditionalists who had always enjoyed it. 
And so once it was yeah. finally removed, what was the thing? And, you know, they changed the language to describe it as a job interview. They made them, uh, they, they stopped <laughs> calling them candidate. They stopped calling them contestants and called them candidates. And every year there's mm. some new euphemism like this to make it sound mm -hmm. more serious or more professional. But yeah. there are all these contradictions uh, still built yeah. into it. I mean, if the focus is professionalism, why are they called myths when nobody in the professional mm. world is called myths? Um, yeah. If the focus is career and national identity, why do they wear a crown when a crown is pretty much mm. the, the, the biggest symbol of everything that Americans are not? I mean, our whole country was founded in defiance of the crown. Exactly. <laughs> So there's like there's a lot to navigate there if in terms of it's trying to adapt to the the women's progress and the era that we're in now. Yeah. And how did you navigate that that research and organize it all? The chapter names I think are so powerful in how you lay everything out and the flow of the story. And I can't imagine that that research and then organization process was very easy. How did how did you do that? I just, you know, did uh, uh, online research and library research to mm -hmm. see what had been established and written. And there had been a few mm -hmm. books, uh, some mostly academic studies. Uh, one really interesting book, I'm going to forget, I'm just looking on my bookshelf to remember the name of it, by a sports okay. writer named Frank DeFord, and it was published in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And he interviewed a bunch of people and got some really interesting stories about, uh, uh, stories out of them. And But the main thing for me was once I had that groundwork, I had to talk to participants because you never really yeah. understand a subject that's, especially a subculture, it sort of relates to my first book, which is was a, um, a history of tattooed women going back to the 20th century, mm -hmm. uh, the 19th century. I, I remembered and just know as a journalist that once you talk to people, the story starts to shift. So yeah, I started approaching, I, I tried to approach um, my subjects, my interviewees through Miss America, but they were really not helpful. And I, I later learned from other journalists uh, that they had the same problem, that there was, we, we could never really figure out if at that time it was defensive, if people just thought we don't really want a feminist critic critiquing this, or if they were mm -hmm. completely disorganized. They were in a really confused state at that time, both in terms of their identity and their leadership was changing. Yeah. And they had a scandal where what their uh, executive director had insulted the contestants in email making like very vicious and nasty and sexist and misogynist comment oh, wow. about their own contestants. So I'm not really sure what that was about. So I ended up just having to try to take other routes, get, you know, find mm -hmm. somebody independently who would be willing to talk and then put me in touch with another winner, both state winners and Miss Americas. And one surprise was, um, you know, the, the Miss Americas had very interesting stories. The state winners had very interesting stories. But in some cases, what was interesting was the stories of losing, because we only really mm -hmm. see Miss America 
in terms of the wins. What does she do? Where does yeah. she go? What does she have to wear? How does it benefit her? And there were two women, one in the 1980s and one, uh, I think it was like maybe 10 years ago, a Princeton student who mm-hmm. was in New Jersey wrote her senior thesis on competing in Miss America. And both she and the woman who did her master's thesis in sociology in the 80s talked about how hard it was on women who lost, who are the ones you don't hear about, and how their self-image was really cratered, and they felt their families were going to be disappointed in them, and they felt that the people who Mm -hmm. had coached them and helped them were going to be disappointed. And they also had a feeling of not only failure, but wondering what am I going to do now? I, I built, I, yeah. I prepared so much for this and I, I'm i not sure who I am now that I'm not doing this anymore. Even some of the winners yeah. had that feeling. They enjoyed their year. They did the whole circuit traveling and representing Miss America. But mm-hmm. uh, three or four of them hit really difficult spots um, at, mm. at best where they experienced depression and anxiety and at worst where they actually became suicidal near the oh. end thinking, you know, what, what next? And, and in one case, a yeah. woman talked about feeling like she, uh, she was a different person once she went back to her home community, having mm-hmm. been Miss America and experienced all that Miss America experienced. So it was really touching to read that. And one of those uh, theses that I write about was by a woman who competed the year after Vanessa Williams won and then was Mm. dethroned from because of uh, having posed naked in photos that Penthouse ran against her, you know, without her permission, causing her to step down. And people after that year felt very confused about now now what is Miss America she had sort of reinvigorated it because she was so talented Mm -hmm. and she was so dynamic and she made history Mm -hmm. by becoming the first black Miss America so that the following year people really just weren't sure what they were supposed to be doing to represent Miss America it was it was sad to read that I mean she talked about people going home after their loss and like curling up in a fetal position for, you know, a few weeks at, or having like oh. stomach pains or uh, like having starved themselves to become a contestant and then mm-hmm. putting on like 20 or 40 pounds and feeling guilty about that mm-hmm. because they've been so trained to be thin and beautiful. Yeah. And, and, you know, for balance, I have to say there were a couple women who, weren't that way who felt like they discovered mm-hmm. hidden talents through competing they could sing better than they realized or they could play piano and yeah. a couple of them launched careers doing that but a lot of them really did suffer as a result of the loss yeah i appreciate that in your book you're very balanced and this is not a a hate book against pageants or mm-hmm. a propaganda to promote pageants it's very level very unbiased and it presents both sides of the story which i think is really important because you you're correct there's 
good and bad that has come out of the 100-year history of the Miss America pageant. And one of my Mm. favorite chapters was the last chapter, um, chapter nine, Survivors. And I want to ask you, why why did you choose to put that chapter in and why did you choose to have it as the ending? Mm, I, you know, I'm forgetting that that was the chapter about the last pageant I attended uh, during the, yes. I think it was 2018. That was, that mm-hmm. was such a big transition point because that was when they had gotten rid of the swimsuits. So the pageant yeah. people themselves were split about that. Some people, yeah. I think the hardcore fans really wanted the swimsuit. The people who wanted mm-hmm. the pageant to progress uh, wanted to get rid of the swimsuit and didn't see why that was still there. And Gretchen Carlson, the former Fox News personality uh, who uh, brought down, oh gosh, I'm going to forget his name, um, Roger Ailes from uh, the, found, the Fox News so. director. I may, yes. It may require a fact check. I'll, I'll check when we get Okay, on. I will fact check that and insert it later on in the edit. <laughs> Thanks. Editing TK here, uh, fact checking, and it was indeed Roger Ailes. Okay, back to the episode. Love you, bye. But she, uh, she's, well, not to digress onto Gretchen Carlson, she, she took over as the, uh, I forget what the title was, the director. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to bring it into the 21st century. So she, you know, got rid of the swimsuits. She also told people, you don't have to wear evening gowns. I think that's one of the mm-hmm. the new language now. I think they don't call it evening gown. They call it red carpet. So it's this semi Oscars, you know, parade. <laughs> <laughs> and so we tried to make it more professional and the, I saw mm-hmm. it that year after these changes had been made and it seemed to me refreshingly so like refreshingly changed the, the, the women I saw performing seemed like they were doing things that were more dignified than some of what I had seen in the mm-hmm. past. And uh, there was like a woman who was performing poetry. There was uh, a woman talking about science and then, I think the year after that, the, one of the winners was an actual scientist who said, Camille Schreier, who said she wouldn't have competed if they hadn't removed the swimsuit. And mm. so she was promoting um, science on her, her year. But so that, that year was important because that was a big change. And I don't think it's really recovered from that change. I think it divided mm. fans. And at the same time that that was happening, it the pageant was lo- losing its viewership. It was something like 80,000 or 80 million viewers in the 1980s. And at that point it was down to 4 million and it was sort of trickling wow. away every year. And in, in their defense, it, it was also, you know, the eighties was the pre-streaming era when everybody tuned in at once to particular shows. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think part of the attrition is to do with the way we watch TV now. Yeah. We don't really have these big event TV TV events, except I guess you could say the Super Bowl is still that. But yeah. anyway, so they were really tr- trying to troubleshoot it to see if it had a future. And that's when I think it started to really collapse and I'm not sure it's going to recover, uh, at least not in the way it was. Well, at the uh, risk of 
sharing everything in the book. I think we'll end the interview <laughs> there today. Thank you so much, Margot. It was fascinating to talk with you. And once again, the book um, that we were discussing today is Looking for Miss America, but that's not the only book that Margot has written. So if listeners want to read more of your books or um, get more information from you, where can they find you? If you go to margomifflin.com, they're all there. Uh, my book, Bodies of Subversion, which I think, is that the one you mentioned? Maud Wagner is in there. Yes, and yes. That led me to a book called The Blue Tattoo, The Life of Olive Oatman, which is about mm -hmm. a woman who was the first tattooed white woman in the U.S. Uh, in the 1850s. And if anybody wants a book plate with a signature, just email me. It's the, My email is on my website, and I'm happy to send one out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Margot. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great questions and a fun time. Thank you so much. And of course, I will put all of that information to find Margot in the show notes. Go buy her book. Go buy it. There's an audio version. There's an ebook version. There's all sorts of versions. So please go get them. Support authors. And thank you so much again, Margot, for joining us today. I had an absolute blast. Thank you. It was great fun. Well, my delicious little donut, that is all for today. Thank you so much for joining Margot and I. Thank you for being here for literally the best season of For the Love of History podcast so far. You honestly, you have no idea how much you mean to me. I can't wait for season six. Don't forget to head over to Instagram in the next few days to vote on the season six topics and head to the show notes to fill out that trip survey. Don't forget to do something that makes you happy. Drink your water. Drink extra water because I won't be talking to you for a few weeks and I will see you soon. Okay, love you. Bye. Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. <laughs> <laughs>